Well, our lead pastor, Andrew Arndt, is, he's traveling this weekend. He is actually in Israel, in the land where the scriptures sort of came out of. And so he's really being fueled up, filled up by that trip with some of our other leaders here at New Life. And uh, that means that you get to hear me preach. And I continue to be reminded of how different Andrew Arndt and I are when it comes to preaching. Um, a couple of weeks ago, Andrew quoted like John Calvin and Dostoevsky. And what I would like to begin our sermon today with is the classic literary work, The Hungry Caterpillar. Um, yes, a, a classic piece. Um, many of you remember reading this as a kid or having it read to you better yet as a kid. Some of you as parents can more recently remember sitting down with your children and like reading through it. Um, how many of you, just show of hands, familiar with this great literary masterpiece? Yeah, you guys know what we're talking about here. Um, my son, Huck, he's three years old. Every night before he goes to bed, I read to him. Many of you have seen Huck sort of running around here. He's the blonde child, probably destroying things. Um, not to be confused with the blonde children of the Stoddards. Those children are like memorizing scripture and teaching people how to like build pergolas and such. And, um, and my kid is destroying said pergolas. But you guys know this story, right? It starts with a caterpillar who's born. And all of a sudden, he just begins to eat everything inside. It's quite a bizarre story. He eats a bunch of fruit, which is very healthy. And then, like many of us, he quickly graduates from fruit to eating things like bratwurst and salami and chocolate cake and ice cream cone. This is basically my diet just on this one page. Muffins, watermelon, cheese, pickles. He eats it. And what happens when he eats all of this food? Do you guys remember? He gets fat. Thank you. We're not fat shaming a caterpillar here. We're just saying what it is gets big. And when a caterpillar gets big, he builds himself a cocoon and he hangs out in there. And then all of a sudden he emerges as what? Some of you don't remember science class and it shows. He emerges as a beautiful, a moth. He emerges as a beautiful butterfly. I remember reading this to my son not long ago. We get to this page where it's a beautiful butterfly and he starts doing this number. He's like, what? He was like, that thing becomes that thing? I was like, yeah, man, that's how the world works. It goes from fat to in a sleeping bag to it flies. Like this is just, this is the world in which we live in. This is sort of how the world works in general, right? We plant a seed in our garden and all of a sudden it's growing and it's changing. It goes from this little tiny thing to this massive, beautiful plant or tree. We know this is true. Resurrection sort of just exists in the places of our lives where things are small and insignificant and they become big and new. But as humans, we're sort of infatuated with this idea that things can like grow and change. And, and in the American mindset, we're very infatuated with the idea that they cannot just grow and change, but they can somehow become like better, right? This is why so many of us, probably half of this room is on a diet of some sort right now. You guys don't want to acknowledge that. That's fine. Um, listen, we're always trying to do this thing where we're like, maybe I could just lose like five more pounds and then I'll like, I'll look perfect. This is what I tell myself every morning. Some of you, it's, it's not like food and weight. For some of you, you like watch Marie Kondo on Netflix and you're like, man, I'm going to reorganize this house so hard. My life is going to be pieced back together because I'm going to only own two t-shirts and one pair of pants. And my life is going to be so simple. Or, or even if you're like a super Christian in the room, which we're thankful that you're here. I would love to be one of you someday. 
Um, you, you, you remember at the like, beginning of a year, a new calendar year, and you were like, you know what? I'm going to read the Bible like 10 times. And I'm, then I'm going to be like, I'm going to become exactly who I need to be. I'm gonna, you know what I'm going to do? I'm just going to pray harder. I'm going to pray more. I'm going to show up to worship, and I'm going to be like hands up all the time. I'm going to walk in with my hands up and leave with my hands up. Which would be funny because like while we were preaching, we'd think you have like a question. Anyways, um, you know what this feels like, that feeling that there's something in us that we want to change. Some of you can think about that a little more personally. Some of you have areas in your life that you're like wrestling through, that you want things to just look different. Some of you can think back across your life where you had big moments, significant moments, where things just changed, life changed. What's interesting in the, world is that, in the world that we live in is that we often think that change sort of comes from within, from within us. We like muster up enough strength and enough energy and very much the American way. We go out and we pursue and achieve the change. But the Bible actually gives quite a different picture of how this works. See, the story that the Bible lays out is that the Spirit of God is the one who actually brings about that change in your life and continues to bring about that change in your life. So if you have a Bible, I want to invite you to turn with me to the book of Titus. It's a small little book back in the New Testament. And it's a letter that Paul has written to his friend. Could you guess what his name is? Yep, the Bible's complicated, but it's not that complicated. Paul wrote a letter to his friend Titus. Titus was someone who had heard the gospel, was not a Jew, did not grow up sort of in that faith background, but he gave his life to Jesus. He became a Christian. And once he became a Christian, Paul looked at him and was like, hey, you're going to actually lead a church and be a pastor, which if many of us would have been told that was what would happen if we gave our life to Jesus, we might have been like, we're going to stay on the fence a little bit longer. Titus becomes the pastor of a church on the island of Crete. Sweet gig, man. It's a big island. Lots of people hang out on the beach all day, go surfing, whatever they did back then. But Paul begins to write a letter to his friend Titus, who is serving, leading, pastoring these people. And he's recognizing that people are, are quite complicated, that they often wish they were good, but sort of behave poorly, that they wish they were changing, but aren't always changing. And Paul pens these words to him, reminding him of, of really what life is all about. He says, at one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us. Not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that having, having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy saying, and I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. Friends, New Life East, this is the word of the Lord and all God's people said. Yes, thanks be to God. Paul, he writes to his friend who's pastoring and he simply just reminds him of what the gospel is, what the good news of God is, that as humans, we were once broken, fractured people who were angry and malicious and would harm one another and 
wish the worst for one another, say things that were destructive, do things that were destructive to ourselves and to other people. And what Paul says to Titus is that the beautiful thing about who God is is, is that he steps in to space and time to the human condition and he brings about redemption through the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus is killed and hung on a cross. He's buried for three days. And in his resurrection, all of humanity has been brought in and invited to the kingdom of God. This is what Paul says. He says, we become good. We become saved, not by the, the workings of our own, not by us sort of like cracking the human code and solving the, the Rubik's cube of the human condition, but that it is by God's mercy. It is a gift to us. And then what he says is that as we step into that newness, into that new life, the spirit is the thing that has been poured out, who keeps walking with us and bringing change about in our lives. We have been made new, and the Spirit is the thing that continues to make us new. This idea has been talked about throughout history. There's a, a really theological word that's used for it, and it's called regeneration. What we recognize is that the Spirit is the one who brings about regeneration in our lives. I think a, an easy way to understand it, what, I, what I've noticed, even today, I had a conversation with a young guy after first service, that semantics are highly important. So when we talk about regeneration, this is what I'm defining it as. Regeneration is what happens when the Holy Spirit gives us the awareness that he is changing us into a new creation. Now catch some key words there. The Holy Spirit gives us, which means one, it is a gift. We have been graciously imparted with this awareness that the Spirit is changing us somehow. Now, what's hard about this idea of regeneration and the work that the Spirit does is that for thousands of years, theologians have sort of argued and debated about when this takes place, right? Many people argue, does it happen before anyone even has faith? And it's like this inkling of a thing and God is sort of pulling them towards it. Maybe. Is it what happens after someone has faith? And then it's the thing that causes them to believe and become a Christian. Maybe. Some people would say it's the thing that happens when you're baptized. You go under the water, you come up a new creation, and you now have sort of experienced what regeneration is like. Here's the truth. Um, I don't actually know when this moment happens, and I don't think most of us know. I think we can sort of have opinions and theories, and that's totally fine. That's really meaningful to have a moment where you can go, I think this is when it happens. Here's the truth, though. The miracle is not when this moment happens when the Spirit gives us the awareness that He is changing us, the miracle is that it happens at all. The miracle is that for some reason, there is a God who has created all of this and who has stepped into human history to save us and continues to, by His Spirit, change us and grab us. I love, in fact, the way that Karl Barth, the great Reformed theologian, talks about this. He says this about regeneration. He says, for it does not enter into consideration that we somehow open, prepare, and equip ourselves for taking part in this event at all. In other words, we're not doing anything for this to happen. He says, the fundamental significance of the Holy Spirit for the Christian life is that this, read regeneration, our participation in the occurrence of revelation is just our, I love this, being grabbed in this occurrence, which is the effect of divine action. In other words, we can't pin down exactly when this happens. All we know is that there are moments for us where we can recognize the Spirit just reaching down and grabbing us up and dragging us into the new creation that Jesus has secured for us on the cross. That's all we can recognize is that it is a miracle. Some of you can remember that moment. 
Maybe you were a kid, maybe you were an adult where you had that moment, everything just locked in and you went, yes, at Jesus, I'm, I give it to you, all of it. For others, it's a little bit harder to pin it. For some of you, you sit in this room and you're like, I'm not even sure if I've had a moment like that with Jesus. All we know is that there is a moment where the spirit reaches down and grabs us and we then respond to what is happening. I love the way that Paul talks about what happens when that moment occurs. He says it in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. He says, so from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has what? And the old has, and the new is. So recognize what Paul says. He says that in this moment where you are sort of grabbed up, scooped up by God and his spirit, a new creation is what you have stepped into. You are, in fact, a new creation. The old has gone and the new is right here. He doesn't say the old is like creeping up behind you, just hanging out. He doesn't say that the new is like, you'll get there someday. He says the old is gone, the new has come. But I've noticed something interesting about this idea. You know, when I became a Christian, I started going to church when I was 16. And uh, I didn't grow up with much faith. I wouldn't say I was like an atheist or agnostic in any sort of way. I just didn't grow up sort of believing in much of anything. And, and then I started going to church, and it didn't take me long to sort of, I got it. Like, it, it clicked for me. It started when, I, I remember a pastor, he, uh, he read the psalm, Psalm 51, verse 5. Some of you know this. That says, surely I was sinful at birth. And it did not take me long to agree with that statement. I was the kid in preschool who your kid was getting sent home because I had bit him on, like, the arm. I was thugging in preschool, guys. And then I was the kid, like, in kindergarten who I would sneak out of class, no lie, and I would go stand on the toilet and sing because I thought the acoustics were great. And then I would, like, invite kids from other classes to sneak out and go listen to me sing on the toilet. <laughs> then I get to, like, middle school and high school, and I'm suspended all the time for fighting. Like, there's, there was a stretch in, like, sixth grade. Like, every other week I was out of school. It didn't take me long to read and see something like, surely I was sinful at birth, to go, yeah, sounds about right. I remember someone walking me through what's sort of in Christianity known as the Romans Road, right? This section of scripture in Romans that helps you I, sort of identify that there is in the human condition a sort of a frailty and a, a need for us to find God, but we don't know how because we're while we've been made new, we're so drawn to brokenness and fracturedness and sin that God is the one who steps in and, and saves us. And I remembered hearing people say things like when they would sort of articulate it, like, you are broken. And I'd be like, harsh, but true. Or they would say things like, you are sick and filled with sin. And I'd be like, man, you don't know me, but that's right. So I gave my life to Jesus. When I was 16, I got baptized in a jacuzzi bathtub upstairs at a leader's home in our church. It was quite uncomfortable, but it worked, I think. Um, but something interesting happened. That moment came. I got baptized. I gave my, man, I'm new creation. And yet I kept hearing sort of the same things, like the same grammar, right? I would, I would talk to Christians who were like baptized and being discipled and walking with Jesus. And the only way they could ever refer to themselves 
was sinful, broken, messed up people. And I was like, yeah, that was true, but you've been brought into the kingdom of God. You've been made new. Your identity has been transformed before the God of the universe. You are a new creation. And what I kept finding was that people could not grasp that idea. They knew who they were, but they couldn't really grab a hold of the new creation, the new identity. They couldn't grab a hold of it. I know for some of you who maybe even come from like the more reformed camp, I'm starting to step on your toes a little bit and that's okay. Just be kind. But there's a recognition. I found it with people that they would sit in church and they would recognize they were baptized and and loved by God and seen differently because of what had happened on the cross, but they would still only be able to refer to themselves as sinful, broken, messed up people. And I understand the reality, right? None of us are perfect. This is not me preaching that I'm up here being perfect. And if we're all good enough Christians, we'll sort of figure it out. That's not how the gospel works. But it was a bizarre thing to me to recognize that even as Paul says, you have been made a new creation, most of us don't really agree with it. We agree with the idea that Jesus has changed something, but maybe he hasn't changed us. Maybe he hasn't changed the dynamics of our lives. But it's interesting how Paul sets this moment up. He says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old is gone, the new is here. But look what he says before it. He says, from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. And what I always read was that a worldly point of view was like the way sinners looked at the world. But I don't actually think that's what he's saying. A worldly point of view is to look at the world the way that it was before Jesus' Jesus' work on the cross. He says, we once regarded Christ in this way, but we do so no longer. What he's saying is to view people the way that God views people is to view them as if the work of Jesus has actually worked. To look at them as if Jesus Christ has actually brought salvation into the world and it is now accessible for all of us. And when we step into it, we find new life. We become a new creation. We are no longer sinners, but as Jesus sees us, we become saints in the kingdom of God. This is how the Spirit changes us. But what's interesting and what you should all be asking is, well, how does that change, like, play out? If the way that it works is God has these moments where he reaches down and scoops us up and the Spirit grabs us and starts to change us, how is it that he begins to change us? I'm going to give you sort of a way to think about it. This is not the only way to think about it. But the the Spirit is identified three different ways in the New Testament with three different metaphors. One of those is wind. Andrew talked about this last week on on Pentecost. The wind shows up and pushes through. There's a mighty force and the Spirit shows up and the church is born. We see the Spirit this way, sort of as the moving, living, breathing breath of God. Another metaphor, though, that that is used for the Spirit is not wind, it's, it's fire. Which is interesting because if you grew up around church or even just in a religious environment, the, most of the time when we think about fire and church and faith and Christianity, what's the first thing that comes to mind? Hell. For most of us, hell is sort of the first place that our brain goes when we think about fire. But actually, that's not really the way the scripture lays out the way that we see the spirit. Think about, think about the words in Luke chapter 3. We'll have them up here on the screen. Luke writes... The people were waiting expectantly and all were wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Messiah. John answered them all, I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I will come. Talking about Jesus, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. And he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. 
Throughout the Old Testament, the fire is, fire is used as this metaphor to talk about the way that God judges the world, the way that God sort of in his holiness and goodness sees the flawed nature of humanity and steps in, intercedes, brings about judgment in their lives. But what's interesting is Luke then begins to describe what Jesus is going to do. The spirit will come as a fire. We see this happen all throughout the Old Testament as well. When Abraham is given the covenant, the promise, the smoking fire pot appears. When Moses is on the bush being commissioned to go rescue Israel from captivity, God reveals himself as a fire in a burning bush. There are moments all throughout the scriptures where we just see that the fire of God, the spirit of God, is just God's presence himself. God himself is defined by our friends in the book of Hebrews as a consuming fire. This is just who he is. In honor of our friend Andrew Arndt being out on on a trip, I'm going to go ahead and quote him because I think he puts it in the best way possible. Andrew writes this in his book, All Flame. He says, one of the most beautiful and challenging ideas in Christian theology is that the person of the Holy Spirit is in fact the bond of love that unites the Father and Son. We said this in the first week about the Holy Spirit. Which means that to experience God the Spirit is to feel the heat of that. It is to feel the heat of love. The Spirit who is the agape love of the triune God draws near with the fire that he is and has. And this is what happens. When that kind of love approaches, by its nature, it burns defective love to the ground, killing as it brings to life, unmaking as it remakes. The God who is a consuming fire and a jealous God intends to draw us by his Holy Spirit into the burning heat of the triune life, changing us as we submit to his work. I couldn't have said it better if I tried. What, he, what Andrew is saying to us, Andrew's somehow going to preach to us, even though he's not here, is that the Spirit is like a consuming fire, which means in that moment where you have been scooped up by God and change is beginning to take place in your life and faith is growing, as God gets closer to you, the fire that he is cannot help but begin to burn away the things that conflict with the holiness of God. Some of you have experienced this. As you've gotten closer to God, you begin to recognize that the Spirit, does, he doesn't start by burning away things. What he starts by doing, as all like solid burning fires do, is the light begins to reveal the places in your life where things are just out of order. The Spirit begins to reveal to you the places where your relationships have gone toxic and sour. He begins to reveal to you the places of sin and hidden sin in your life that that maybe even your closest friends and significant other don't know about. He begins to reveal them to you. He begins to reveal the character flaws, the anger, the self-righteousness, the judgment that we carry. And he always starts by revealing, because I believe that God is interested in co-working with us to bring holiness and goodness into those places. But what we know to be true is when we sort of ignore those things, as fire gets close, it can't help but burn just a little. So those places of sin in our life, as God begins to rip them away or reveal them, relationships start to fall apart. Your marriage gets put on the fringe because you've been mischievous. Your career and your calling, as you've held so tightly to it, this thing that maybe you were never supposed to be doing, but man, it paid a lot of money, so you've held on to it. 
and God is slowly ripping it away, you can't help but feel pain as it's pulled out of your hands. This, my friends, is how the Spirit begins to change and transform our lives. As He just gets closer to us with His loving presence, it can't help but burn and kill off the things that were never supposed to be there in the first place. My friends, let me ask some of you in this room, just ponder this question. Are there places in your life that you're currently holding on to things and the Spirit has already set them on fire? And now the pain that you're feeling isn't that it's on fire, it's that you won't let it go. Where are those places? Here's the hard thing about sort of confronting this question though, is as we change and as the Spirit changes us, we begin to recognize that He has a lot to say about a lot of things. There's not many places we can just sort of sneak by Him like, maybe He won't see this. Maybe He won't talk to me about this. And so what it can often feel like as the Spirit begins to change us and transform our lives is that He is ripping everything and burning everything away. I can remember when COVID hit and came on strong and we all sort of went back to, to our homes and I was working at home and my wife and I, we were living in Dallas, Fort Worth, Texas at this time. And we, uh, we, we lived in this neighborhood that had like beautifully manicured lawns all over the place. And then there was like our lawn, which just existed, like wasn't doing anything great, wasn't awful, but it was just there. And occasionally when I would be on work calls, I would walk around the neighborhood and just take a call, you know, get outside and try to feel like there was some normalcy going on. And I remember as I would take these calls, I would see all these beautiful lawns and I would think to myself, man, I wish our lawn could look like that. So I looked one day at our lawn and I realized, well, man, it looks bad because there's just like a lot of weeds in here. So I would take these phone calls and I would walk around outside and I would just start pulling weeds out of our lawn just pulling anything that didn't belong, anything that wasn't supposed to be there. I would just get rid of it, throw it in the trash. Until one day when I went outside and realized that about two thirds of our lawn at this point was just dirt. (laughs) I had just pulled basically everything off. Our whole lawn was weeds except for like this little like moon-shaped strip on one side. Our whole lawn was weeds. I'd pulled everything up. Everything that shouldn't be there was gone. And the question when that happens to us in our life of faith is, well, what do I do now? You've stripped everything from me. Maybe you've even had that moment where you've looked at God and been like, God, you've taken everything from me. The relationships I used to have are gone. The career I had is gone. The the sort of behaviors that I did when I was anxious and fearful are gone. Granted, it's because God is drawing you closer, but it doesn't make it feel any better as it's happening. But here's the beautiful thing about how the Spirit changes us. He doesn't just sort of leave us in a dry desert wasteland. He doesn't just leave you in chaos because the other metaphor that's used for the spirit is not just wind and fire, but it's also that of water. I think about the Old Testament prophet Ezekiel 
God speaks to Ezekiel, and as he's speaking to him, all of God's people are scattered. They've been ravaged and destroyed. Plenty of them have been killed. They've lost families, their careers, their farms, their land has all been stripped away from them. And God makes this sort of assertion in Ezekiel that it's because they have not followed him with their whole hearts. So God, he speaks to Ezekiel in chapter 36. He says this to the people of God. He says, for I will take you out of the nations. Read, I will strip something away. I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove you, I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Then, and only then, will you live in the land I gave your ancestors. You will be my people and I will be your God. Read what the Spirit does. The Spirit doesn't hesitate to find the places in our lives that do not align with the goodness of God and begin to remove them. But our God is not bitter. He's not angry. And friends, hear this. He's not interested in seeing you in pain. He will always bring newness to the places where he has pulled things out. For many of you, it's easy to identify the places where things are being stripped away. It gets more complicated to identify the places where something new is being brought into us. For some of you, the reality of the way that the Spirit begins to regenerate us should draw some of you to deep thankfulness. Where you can sit in this room and remember the moment where it was as, as if God reached down and scooped you up. That moment where the Spirit reached down and grabbed you and brought you in to being a new creation. For others of you, you can look internally and see all the things that you wish were different. The struggles that you have, the anxiety that you deal with, the worry. And you're going, God, would you change me? Change this. You can have it, but would you change it? For some of you, what this morning should do is draw you to a deep place of surrender. To simply look God in the face and say, I don't like what this is. Would you change it? And by changing it, would you change me? So New Life East, would you stand? God says through the prophet that he will remove our heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh. So God, what I pray over these people in the room today is that you would begin to make that happen. That for some of us, we should be drawn to a deep place of gratitude where we are thankful for who you are and for what you have done. For others of us, we need to be moved to a deep place of surrender where we look at you in this moment, God, and say, I realize that there are things you are trying to burn to ashes and I trust you with them. And I trust that as you burn them down, you will bring something new 
into our lives. So Spirit, would you do it? I pray over the people of New Life East that they would not leave the same way that they came in. That the places of the places in their lives that are keeping them from being a new creation, would you burn them away and would you bring something new to life? Would you bring the fruit of the Spirit to life in us? For those of you who can remember that moment where you were snatched up by the Spirit and you chose to continue to lean in, would you give Him thanks in this moment? And as we surrender and as we sing, Spirit, would you speak to us? It's in your name we pray. Amen. Jesus, we just want to see you, Lord, as our way maker, as the only one, the only one, the only one who can change our hearts and change
take communion together so feel free to grab the cup and the bread that you were handed as you walked in often one of the most challenging things about allowing the spirit to change us is that change involves the loss of something it involves the loss of the way we think about life it involves a change in the the way we deal with our problems and respond to the life that we live. And I can't help but think about the disciples the first time that, that Jesus washed their feet. It happened right before he broke bread and drank with them. And I have to imagine that for so many of them, that was such a conflicting idea that this man who was God in the flesh would somehow stoop below them to wash their feet that this God in the flesh would somehow deal with them, the worst parts of them, the dirtiest part, the, their feet, they've just walked around covered in dust. And this God would somehow get into those spaces and would not be phased by it, would not be turned away, would not be discomforted by it. And I feel like the word for someone in this room today is that if you really want the spirit to unleash change in your life, you also have to be willing to let God see the worst places. The spaces of your heart that are filled with bitterness and rage, the spaces of your mind that are filled with thoughts of contempt and anger, the spaces of sin that you want no one to see, even God himself, you have to be willing to allow God to step into those spaces. And what's beautiful about communion is that it is a reminder that no matter what dirt is on you, you are invited to the table. So on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he sat down with his closest friends, his disciples, and he took bread and he broke it. New Life East, would you break that bread in your hands? He said, this is my body, which will be broken 
for you. Every time you eat, would you do this in remembrance of me? So New Life East, would you eat and remember? That same night, Jesus took a cup. He said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. The shedding of my blood is what draws you into being a new creation. It is what draws you into the kingdom of God. It is what enables you to be grabbed up and swooped up by the Spirit. And every time you eat and you drink, would you do this remembering that it is that moment that has changed you for forever. So New Life East, would you take and would you drink? And would you respond by singing the doxology? Friends, would you hold your hands open in front of you and receive this benediction? Not a hymn was able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. According to his power that is at work within us through the Holy Spirit, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. And all God's people said, you need prayer, the altar team will be gathered here at the front of the stage for you to come and pray with them. Uh, We will see you next week. Thank you for worshiping with us. You all have a good day.